I am seeking to advance justice. I'm trying to influence U.S. policy to be just. I'm trying to influence actions in the country I'm working in, whether it has to do with rule of law or transnational crime or economic policy or whatever it might be. My guest today is Jessica Patterson Long, one of the best students I ever had. Therefore, I'm always glad to see her. She works for the United States State Department. She's been in the ambassadorial service in a number of countries. Right now, she is the brand new Chargé d'Affaires, which means she's the ambassador when there is no ambassador. So she's getting ready to be the ambassador. And she is an extremely thoughtful Christian about politics and the faith. Delighted to have her with us today. This interview took place in May of 2021. At that time, things were stable in Afghanistan. So when she mentions Afghanistan, we don't follow up on it in any way. We want you to know that. So you're not surprised by the lack of comments on recent events in Afghanistan. From the Center for Faith and Work here in St. Louis, this is Working with me, your host, Dan Doriani. Here we strive to fire the imagination of Christians who long to practice their faith in the workplace through conversations with doctors, athletes, teachers, executives, and more, we seek to engage those who desire to do significant work, to practice love and justice in their work, and who dare to change their corner of the world through that work. Jessica, it's so nice to talk to you again. And we re, you know, we hi, got to, hi, we got to hang out a couple weeks ago and it was so wonderful because I've been thinking about interviewing you for this podcast, Faith and Work. And you try to practice your faith at work, right? I do. Yes, <laughs> as a matter of fact. That's great. And you have a very unusual job. You work for the State Department, United States State Department. Uh, people can tell that from your That's accent. Right. You've been there about 18 years. And right now you're <laughs> in a country that is, um, you know, not familiar to everybody. Where are you right now? Where were you before then? Because we know that the State Department moves people around. Just tell us where you've been lately and what you're doing now. Sure. I'm in Namibia right now. I'm the what's called the Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy in Namibia, which is sort of, the, it's like the equivalent of being the Deputy Ambassador, but we call it a Deputy Chief of Mission. And right before this, I was in Kosovo. Um, before that, I was in Washington. And then the list goes on. Yeah. And you move about every two or three years, maybe something like that. That's right. That's right. Two to three years. And what does that feel like to keep moving to a different country every once in a uh, you know, pretty rapidly, actually? Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously moving every time you move, it's a drag. But um, the world is so fascinating. And I do think that moving every two to three years also helps develop in us as foreign service officers a, a sort of geopolitical thinking because you begin to see connections from different around different parts of the world. You also begin to understand how issues um, are interconnected. And so it's, it's useful professionally, um, but it can be exhausting. Yeah. You know, I was reading a book recently about marriage all over the world by a sociologist, and he pointed out that the issues in marriages right now have changed a lot, and they're all the same. Everywhere in the world, people are getting married later, they're having fewer babies, and they're infected oh. by Western notions of marriage. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to your State Department experience? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously you see differences around the world, cultural differences, but there's you always find things that are familiar wherever you are. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read the book. It's sort of intriguing, but I'm not surprised. I think the the world, the, definitely the world is facing a population decline. And so mm. I could see that that's a reality everywhere. Yeah. So we met, you know, 20-ish years ago at a seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary, where you were one of my very finest students. And uh, somehow <laughs> you say that to all your students. No, actually, I don't. <laughs> I, some of them I say I liked you a lot <clears throat> um, and I thought you were interesting. And uh, you asked some you asked some fascinating questions. That's actually a very hidden insult, like so fascinating. I think how on earth did you come up with that question? But no, you're a great student, really very gifted. You're a very gifted Thanks. woman. Um, and you found your way to the State Department. How did that happen? You know, it's actually, it's an interesting story, and you were part of it. Um, I had been in ministry, working in campus ministry before I went to seminary. But at seminary, several professors, you included, I think probably about six or seven professors, 
separately pulled me aside and said, you know, have, are you aware of how much you talk about justice and governance and global affairs? You really should consider a career in that. And I said, yeah, but I love ministry. And you all said, you know, you can do ministry no matter what your job is. Um, you love justice because God loves justice. Uh, I think one of the things you said to me, too, is that you had a hard time picturing me be, being fulfilled if I weren't playing on the world stage. Um, so I, after a lot of encouragement from professors at seminary, I decided to take the Foreign Service entrance exam. And I took it from seminary and joined at that point right after I graduated. And I thought, well, if this doesn't work out, I can um, always try to go back into ministry. But that was, as you said, almost 18 years ago, and I continue to love it. So I'm still here. So, I mean, when you go to seminary, your goal is to love God and to love your neighbors yourself. How would you say you're loving God and loving your neighbors yourself in countries, some of which have a lot of Christian influence, some don't, some are probably very happy that you're a Christian, some may not be so happy. How do you love God and neighbor at the State Department? Yeah, you know, I think, so our job really is to advance U.S. interests, um, but because the world is interconnected. It's not a zero-sum game, right? And so in, in advancing U.S. interests, we're also seeking to do things that are beneficial for the country that we're working in. Um, or in Washington, if you're, you're, when you're in Washington, you're working on you know, a part of the world from Washington. And so in that sense, I am seeking to advance justice. I'm trying to influence U.S. policy to be just. I'm trying to influence actions in the country I'm working in to... Um, be just whether it has to do with rule of law or transnational crime or economic policy or whatever it might be. And so in that sense, I would say, yes, I am trying to love God well, love my neighbors, myself, advance justice, mercy, etc. Yeah. So uh, one of the things we say here at the Center for Faith and Work is we don't try to change the world, but we do try to change our corner of the world. And you are one of those people that serves in, you know, relatively small countries over the last little while. I mean, I do my homework a little bit, so it depends on how you count, but there are maybe, you know, maybe 200 nations in the world right now. And a huge number of them have two to 10 million people. In fact, you know, we could kind of list off the countries that are very familiar, countries I've been to or I'll be to very shortly. Um, Greece, Lebanon, Israel, Ireland, Hungary, Austria, Singapore, Switzerland, they're all like two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight million people. And, you know, there are cities in every country that are bigger than that have more people. What's it like to work in a small, you know, Namibia has two point something million, Kosovo is also in that right. two or three million. What's it like to work in a small country? Is it harder, easier? Um, you know, I would say that the importance of a country to the United States is not defined by its size um, for a few reasons. Obviously, if you look at most of the um, both threats and priorities around the world, most of them are transnational. So yes. pandemic is an example, um, economic interconnectedness, counter, you know, terrorism, cybercrime, et cetera. All of these things are transnational. Yeah. And so it is in the U.S. interest for us to be partnering with countries around the world, because otherwise criminals, terrorists, whoever, they find the vulnerability, right? Um, also, small countries have the same, they carry the same weight in international organizations in terms of a vote is a vote. So whether you're Germany or Namibia or whatever, a vote is a vote. Um, and in the end, I think what we're trying to find, whether you're in a large country or a small country, you're trying to figure out how... Do, what does just policy from the United States in this country look like? And what do we want to try to influence in this country to better shape things, to be more just, to be you know, beneficial to American citizens, to the global economy, to countering pandemics, you know, whatever it might be. So I would say the size of the country is less the issue in terms of what makes it important or what makes it difficult. Um, but we, we have kind of broadly the same mandate every, in every country the way you implement and practice that shifts, obviously, where you depending on where you are. I really like your answer. Um, what you're saying is, <laughs> what you're saying is, it's not size per se that matters. What matters is the cause, justice, um, good policy, um, 
And I think that could be very encouraging for people who maybe work in a firm that has five or 10 people as opposed to, oh, what can I do? Uh, I don't work for a corporation that has 30,000 people. And most people work in small places. Uh, but let me pick up on something you just mentioned, terrorism. Um, very much transnational, obviously. Terrorists go to weak, poorly governed countries with maybe very little functional government in terms of, uh, you know, justice and, and reigning in lawlessness. You worked in terrorism a while. What's that like? What, how do terrorists think? It's a, it's a big question, so I'm going to try to be brief. Yeah, yeah, um, give you me, can yeah, ask right. me more if you, if you want more. Yeah, um, sure. So I did, I worked, um, so I spent a year in um, southeastern Afghanistan, and then I was the foreign policy advisor to Naval Special Warfare. That's the Navy SEALs and Navy SWIC. Mm. And then after that, I worked in counterterrorism policy in Washington, covering the Middle East, North Africa, and South and Central Asia. So um, nice, nice world, small basically. parameters, only <laughs> yeah, about 40% exactly. of the globe. All right. <laughs> I was bored often. No, so, um, you know, I would say, obviously, there's all kinds of terrorism. There's, you right. know, um, Muslim terrorism, there's Hindu terrorism, there's white nationalist terrorism, and there's all sorts of things. I think some of the things people have in common, uh, that there's an issue of some sort of grievance. Um, mm. And so one of the things we found often in the Middle East is that, People, um, there, there were about eight or nine date main motivators among um, the the um, terrorists. This this information comes from from interviews of people who'd been captured, but right. um, and that religion was usually towards the bottom. Um, that other motivating factors were, you know, anger at seeing how. Um, Assad in Syria treated Muslims or um, or feeling like they'd been a victim of violence in their own, of law enforcement in their own country and had no recourse um, to deal with it. Things like that that create rage um, or for some people it's adventurism. I mean, there's all sorts of motivations. Um, so it does vary. But the, the narrative of grievance is very common, especially uh, for people who feel like there's no recourse to their grievance. So. Mm. Yeah, that's an important, that ties in with your comments about good governance. And so if there's governance, then people can take their grievances through proper channels and have a, a sense that their voice will be heard. Yeah, it's really profoundly important. I think um, the, the consequences of poor governments are, governments are so broad. They can be, you know, you can see terrorism crop up, but you also see, you know, economic dis, uh devastation or food insecurity or, I mean, the, the issues are really serious. And so I think good governance both in our own country and around the world is important. And if we can, obviously there's people in the United States, people, companies, et cetera, who are trying to advance good governance domestically. And then we're trying to also um, do that abroad because it does have implications that will in effect affect the United States. So, yeah. So everything you say makes me want to ask for no more questions. Um, but, uh, I <laughs> That's think better than I'm, the opposite, I guess. <laughs> oh, well, yes, except we have to be somewhere by noon, right? Um, so I think I want to ask you this question. Every job has its um, veneer of excitement and its mundane work. When you say counterterrorism in all these countries, uh, so working for the State Department, you're like number two in Namibia, kind of, maybe not the number two, but certainly a number two, a very important person. Um, some people think exciting. Oh, my goodness. You stopped a terrorist attack. You told the Navy SEALs to get in there and you saved lives. Other people think <laughs> bureaucracy. Oh, my goodness. How boring. She's probably writing memos saying we got to do something and nobody ever reads it um, or they read it and decide you're wrong. Wh which is more accurate is working for the State Department and things like uh, anti-terrorism. Uh, or other aspects, maybe food, a, a hunger situation. Is it exciting or is it tedious and bureaucratic? Yes, um, it is. Uh, I mean, I would say I genuinely love my job. It is fascinating. And you're mm. you're constantly learning because, you know, we work in different parts of the world. We're working in different languages. Um, I've worked in multiple languages around my throughout my career. And you're learning new things and um, identifying new problems that you're trying to figure out the best way to approach um, and there are times where you have just sort of shocking influence. Um, 
there have been times where I, I can't quite get over the um, platform I've been given in certain situations. Um, but there's also the, the exactly what you said. There's lots of writing of memos and trying to persuade people. And there's times where I feel like I paid to beat my head against the wall. Um, <laughs> but that's just how things work, right? You know, there's time for you go in and you change the direction of an interagency meeting about the best way we should approach a problem. Um, and you're really gratified because you feel like, okay, we're going to move forward in, in a direction that I think is really going to be effective. And there's other times where you feel like a voice crying in the wilderness. And um, that's, you know, also, I have to say, that's also where my faith is helpful that the fate of the world or counterterrorism or food security or environmental issues or whatever it is, is not on my shoulders. Right. So I seek to um, do what I can, as you said, in my corner of the world, wherever I seek, wherever I'm trying to have influence at the moment. Um, and then, you know, I don't control the outcome, but fortunately, um, the one who does is a lot smarter and wiser and more effective than I. So, you know, I love your answer. I'm going to just I'll pick out the phrase, sometimes I feel like I'm paid to beat my head against the wall. And I think probably almost everybody feels that way at times. And yet, you know, almost your next sentence was, on the other hand, or the previous sentence was, I have shocking influence. And then you spoke about being deeply gratified with your work. Can I, can I just pretend that you're going to address somebody who's very frustrated in their work? And they want to focus on that middle part, you know, I beat my head against the wall and forgot about influence and gratification. Say a word to somebody, maybe even somebody like yourself, a highly intelligent woman who maybe doesn't get all the respect possible because she's a woman, but as you wish, you can do it to a woman or you can do it to anybody who's beating their head against the wall. What would you say to them? So first, I mean, you know me, I would ask questions because I'm a question asker. Um, but um, to try to you know figure out what the what the sources of frustration are, um, mm. but you know the things I come back to all the time are I, I really love the Old Testament and I come back to narratives all the often where we know the end of a lot of these stories because we get to read to the end, but a lot of these people in the middle didn't know how things were going to turn out. So you think of Joseph in prison or Daniel at times feeling like. Hey, you know, neither of these kings always does, always follows my um, counsel or um, and, and I think we're in the middle of the story. We don't know the end of our own story of our own involvement. God does. Um, and so there are these times where um, you might feel like you're in prison or like your counsel is accomplishing nothing or that you're mocked or ridiculed or humiliated, which obviously that's, you know, we have that um, model in Christ of what it looks like to walk through that graciously. Um, and so to not give up, I think this, you know, and I have to preach this to myself frequently, right? We have huge reason for optimism because ultimately we do know the end of the story. And so there's a reason to persevere, um, even if it looks like the circumstances around you are telling you that there's no value in, um, in perseverance. Yeah, we don't know in the middle of the story uh, uh, whether we're gonna, our story's gonna end like, um like Daniel and Joseph or like Jeremiah with, you know, right. ruination. And the, the call, of course, is to be faithful. What's the shape of faithfulness in the State Department, especially when you're stuck in a, in a difficult situation? And I, may, I move, move from that to the hardest situation you've ever been in. But tell us about faithfulness day by day in the State Department. Some of faithfulness looks like seeking to lead the people that work for you well, um, seeking to to empower them to make sure that they can blossom as well. One, because that's what it means to, to love people. And secondly, because that's the way we as an organization will be most effective. I think secondly, though, on the, and where this where I really um, am thankful so frequently for my seminary education is that it means to to seek to understand what good policy would look like in a difficult situation. Because, you know, on TV shows, when you talk about what's going on in the world and the president or the secretary of state, they're, they're focusing on one crisis at a time. But that's not how the world works, right? So there's always multiple issues and sometimes there's competing interests. And trying to think through what, what does it actually look like to advance justice here? And I think... I don't want to go on too long here because I can get on my soapbox because I think about this all the time. But 
you know, what we see, God could have dealt with the world the way the world should have been. He could have said, you all are a bunch of sinners and I have given you my law. Follow it. That's the way the world is supposed to work. But instead, he dealt with the world the way the world is, not the way it should be, um, but the way it really is. And so we see that even in Old Testament law, where sometimes he, his laws are really indicative of the fact that the world is broken. They don't, yeah, they they do not capture perfection. Right. They mitigate. But we fully see that, obviously, in the gospel, where this is God dealing with the world as it is, and he sends his son um, and I think the same in policy all the time where it can be tempting to, to think, to, to advocate for a policy that sounds good or that sounds gratifying or whatever, or appeals to certain people, but instead to really try to think through, okay, how will this policy actually affect things on the ground, people on the ground, systems on the ground, et cetera. And if, um, if this policy might sound good to you know, voters or whoever, but I think it's actually gonna do damage, then what is a policy that will more that will you know mitigate damage or advance justice more or or restrain evil more or whatever it might be? So, sorry, that yeah. was a long answer, but no, it's okay. We had we had a guest uh, not long ago who was in uh, who's an elected official for the United States government, and he said, you know, whenever you enact any policy, you have to ask about unintended consequences of that policy and whether doing good over here on one side is gonna cause a variety of evils on the other side. And you're exactly right in the Bible. You know, there are, there are rules about marriage and divorce, for example, which are not the ideal, but they rein in abuses. And uh, they, they describe the world as it is. So I appreciate that. Let me, let me go to uh, a, a related question, I guess. And just for the sake of our listeners, you have permission from the State Department to talk to me. We had to ask for that. And there are certain things you can talk about, and maybe a couple of things you are not able to talk about. What, what was the hardest situation you ever faced that you're allowed to talk about? And how did you, again, sure. apply your faith and your, you know, Christian ethical principles to that? It's very fair. And I'm glad you actually raised the whole point about the State Department. I should also clarify that I am speaking like, you know, I'm expressing my own views and uh, right. faith views and opinions and things. So I'm not right now acting as a spokesperson for the State Department. Right. So I would say, if I may, can I, there are two, um, two of the hardest periods of my career, and they were hard for very different reasons. Um, okay. One was when I was in um, southeastern Afghanistan that year, and I was part of a team. And you know, it was interesting because the State Department initially was going to send me to a part of Afghanistan um, that I went back to the State Department and said, you know, that part of Afghanistan is actually more in sync with the United States and our goals. I would rather go to a part of Afghanistan where the conflict is still really serious and where we really need people who can be involved in negotiations and that sort of thing. So they sent me to one of those places. And... Um, it was it was actually an amazing year overall, but um, there were some really awful times, and two people on our team were killed, and it was um, devastating. I'm, you know, I, it's still hard for me to talk about. Um, but I do think, as somebody who seeks to influence policy, I think it's very important to have. Um, Sorry, I didn't expect to get so emotional. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, Somehow, uh, when we talk about things in public, it gets it, the emotions rise again. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's really important for anybody who's going to influence policy to have some understanding of how serious war is um, and how messy it is. Um, and I think because otherwise, it can be too tempting to to think, okay, there's no other solution here. You know, violence or conflict is the only option. And I think it's important to see the messiness of that so that um, you really seek to put all, all you have into trying to find other options. Um, so that was one that was very painful and it continues to be painful, obviously. Another was painful for a very Can I just break in and say reason. Christian, Christian yes. tradition yes. says um, war as a last resort and only if war can be expected to have fewer dire consequences than the opposite. You don't go to war if you're going to, you know, cause greater damage by the war, no matter how just your cause might be. Anyway, right. I just want to label that. Good. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, um, 
having seen um, war in a different way than I had before, it makes me um, ask a lot more questions about what uh, what those negative consequences would be than I would have had I not, I think, because it's just a lot messier than we like to think. Um, so the other thing I would say um, is that I had there was a period in my career where um, I I my assessment was that we were being asked to do things that were unethical um, for political motivations. Um, and so we were being asked this not by a, a, a career State Department person, but by a political appointee. Um, and so that was profoundly difficult because, um, you know, obviously integrity is incredibly important. Um, were you and being so, asked to lie to people, essentially, or deceive them? Was that part of it? No, okay. no, um, no, it wasn't. Um, it was we were being asked to, to take on actions that would um, that would influence things in a way that I felt were profoundly okay. unethical and ultimately mm -hmm. damaging to the United States. So in that situation, um, you know, a few things, I think one is you try to do what you can to find influencers who might be able to change the direction of things. So you write, you, you talked about writing boring memos. Sometimes you write really um, not, not boring um, documents. Um, you try to influence wherever you can from the inside through talking to the right people, et cetera. Um, you also, um, you know, there are a lot of ways within the U.S. government, not just the State Department, but within the U.S. government more broadly to try to um, raise what we call dissent um, when we think that policies are problematic. And so you need to take advantage of those things. Um, and then, you know, you have options. I think for me in this situation, I was leading a team and just tried to lead my team um, in a way that that still was ethical. And so and I, I did tell my team, like, you are welcome to just, you know, sit some of these things out. Um, here are some of the talking points I'm going to use um, that would would not probably match with what this political appointee was asking. But. Um, but do still protect U.S. interests. You know, I, I, you, I'm not going to ask any of you to do this. Like, I wanted people to sort of feel like, um, you know, they could work with a clear conscience. Um, the other thing I think that's important is finding where you have agency in these situations. So sometimes you can't change the big policy, but you can do some things on the margins that, um, that do help uh, protect U.S. interests or mitigate, you know, the things that are going on around you. Is that enough detail? Does that make yeah, that's sense? Gr no, that's great. Um, I'm just going to comment. Okay. You know, years, 400 years ago, John, 450 years ago, Calvin said that when you have a, an evil king, you must appeal to the lesser magistrate, meaning the king is corrupt. The king is asking for um, mayhem, murder, wars, uh, you know, depriving people of property for dissent, etc., which were all things in Calvin's day. And he said, in those cases, you don't, you don't go to lawlessness, you don't go to anarchy, you don't start a revolution. You look around for other people, maybe in his case, of course, an, uh, you know, a baron or a nobleman of some kind, a duke, an earl. But you look for other magistrates, other people who've been empowered by God and appeal to them to do something, which sounds very similar to uh, your concept of raising dissent. No, absolutely. I think that's the reason why the State Department has that system in there, because you need to there needs to be a way to do that. Obviously, the, you know, people do resign at times because they feel like they have tried to raise dissent through channels. Um, nothing changes as a result of that. They need to resign. Um, I have not been I have not decided to resign, you know, and that that was actually the only instance in my career where I felt like I was really asked to do something unethical. Um, there's certainly obviously there's times where I personally disagree with policies. Um, but that to me is not so problematic. I'm representing the United States. So the country I'm working in, they don't care about my personal opinion. Obviously, right. they want to know what the U.S. position is. Right. Um, but um, and so even if I disagree, I can I can still recognize it can it's a you know, it's an ethical policy. We just sometimes disagree on what's going to be effective. Yeah. So if I can see if this sounds about right. And I say this maybe in church situations, sometimes if you're in a church leadership team, and you have a view, and your view is the minority view, let's say the vote's seven to three, and you're the three, uh, we should be perfectly capable to say, well, if, if seven really good people 
thoughtful, prayerful, wise people think I'm wrong, and only two people agree with me, there's a really good chance I'm wrong. And so I should submit to the majority and maybe do so gladly. It's very different if the seven are telling you to do something you think is immoral. So a judgment call right. is very different for from a, a clear violation of moral ethical standards. Right. That's a perfect clarification that when I was working in counterterrorism and then also one other job I had in Washington, I was often going to meetings at the White House that were interagency meetings where you would have, you know, the Department of Defense and, and Treasury and Intel community, et cetera. Um, and we would argue things out. Um, and there were times where I would come out really pleased with the decision and times I would come out displeased. But either way, we had argued it out. And then it went to our bosses often if, you know, if it it had to go to our bosses up to the cabinet level sometimes to make decisions. But absolutely, then you submit to it, right? And maybe I lost that argument or whatever. Right. But um, that's the, there is a sense of, uh, for me, to not trust the system in that sense, that people are coming together, they're debating, they're making decisions. Um, you know, I have to trust that that is bigger than me and... Um, and submit, and absolutely, that's what we do. Then, and then we go advocate for that that policy, that decision. Yeah, I also like the concept of uh, agency at the edges, which is not the same thing as sabotage. Um, sabotage is getting right. an order and just saying, "I'm going to disregard it. I'm going to, or I'm going to execute it in a way that's so feckless that it'll fall apart." That's sabotage. But operating at the edges to improve it a little bit within my agency—that's different, right? How is it different? It is different. Yeah, I think um, because what you're what you're not you're not going at. So let's say in this example where we were told to do something, I'm not going out and doing the opposite, mm-hmm. right? I can't go out and do the opposite. That's um, not appropriate. But what I can do is I can say, okay, I recognize this is going to hurt. This is going to, you know, let's say violate trust with this group of people. So I can go reach out to that group of people and try to reinforce areas where we do have common ground so that over the long term, there is still a sense that we are partners. We are not, um, you know, adversaries in this issue or this process or whatever it might be. And so um, it it is not as gratifying as doing what you think is the right, you know, overall approach, um, but it does still mitigate the damage of what you think might be a harmful approach. And so I think... I guess I shouldn't say always because my experience is limited, but I feel like um, almost always, at least, there are ways to to try to still um, not undermine your leadership, uh, absolutely, but still, you know, mitigate um, concerns that you have um, through interpersonal relationships, through um, you know, negotiations, interpersonal relationships, I cannot exaggerate how important those are in diplomacy, obviously. Um, if people trust you, even if they're mad at you because of your approach or whatever, it it is, you can come back from that. Um, whereas if people find you an untrustworthy person or just a rude person or whatever, right. um, that actually affects dynamics between countries. So, so I'm guessing, I, I think, yeah, sorry. I, th- I think what I hear you saying is uh, you may have to talk to somebody and say, look, I'm not going to be able to uh, tell you that our policy is going to please you. It's Our policy is not going to please you. But you do that in a way that's probably, I hear two things, I think. Uh, honest, as honest as you can be with them and as respectful as you can be. And if you're honest and respectful, then you preserve the relationship, even if uh, you're bearing disappointing news. And then you can work together six months or three months or maybe a week later. Is that accurate? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that big picture. That's accurate. Obviously, there's, you know, nuance in that. But I think yes. part of it is 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 that you are reassuring that um, what is happening now, you know, it might be temporary or it might be um, uh, an aspect of the relationship. But the relationship is much broader and longer than this, this moment in time where there is a huge source of frustration. Yeah. So do you mind if I um, go back to you being a woman in the State Department? Is that OK? Can I do that? Of course. You're okay, the interviewer. Great. You get to ask whatever uh, yeah. you want. Well, I just, you know, I want to make sure you're still okay with it. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. So um, if people listen to the show long enough, they know that I have three daughters, no sons. And all my daughters are, are kind of like you, to be honest. I mean, they're, you know, they're intelligent, they're <laughs> tough. And it's, you know, 
there's a certain uh, confidence, or maybe even a lot of confidence, in you and in my children and a lot of women in this world. And there are places in which that works and places in which it's shocking to people. If you're in Afghanistan, I'm guessing they're not used to working with strong women. Maybe Kosovo, uh, maybe Namibia. I You can comment, but uh, I'll just tell you a story and then I'll ask you to you know, react and tell me how it works out with you. So I talked to a woman who's an architectural designer a while ago, and she was redesigning a, a huge office for a very big corporation. And one of her jobs was to tell a bunch of men that they weren't going to have a door on their office anymore. And she's a small person, not lacking in confidence, but a relatively small person, you know, like whatever, five, four and slender. And, you know, the men she's telling her, like construction workers and cement supervisors and steel beam uh, managers are just <laughs> big. You know, the average size is like 6'4", 250 pounds. And she has to go tell them all, you're not going to get what you want. And and she says, OK, here's here's what you're getting. The boss said you're getting this and you're getting this. And they all to a man, they also like seven of them. I don't know how many were, but more than two. They all said, well, we'll see about that. And she said, yes, you will see. And what I'm telling you is what you're going to get. And she was right. I mean, she won, even though she's maybe, maybe barely half the size they are, right? Right. I just love that story about, um, and she was younger, substantially younger than them as well. I, what do you think? What's it like to be a woman telling men in a men's world, here's what it's going to be. Yeah. So I've had several, um, positions where I was, when I was in Chile, I was, uh, I led the, um, transnational crime working group, basically law enforcement working group. Um, and most of the people on that working group were, you know, U S law enforcement, et cetera. So I was, um, at times the only woman or one of the few, and then my year in Afghanistan, um, obviously working with um, Afghan tribal leaders and village elders who are all male. Um, and then at Naval Special Warfare, the special operations community at that time was um, was completely male in terms of the operators. So it um, and also in counterterrorism. I mean, yeah, there's been several points in my career where I was one of few women. And, um, you know, I would say in diplomacy, I have found my gender more often to be an advantage than a disadvantage. Uh, I, I find that in, when I need to have hard conversations with people and say hard things, they get their backs up less with me than they do sometimes with my male counterparts. I've actually found that with the U.S. military as well, that, um, that having these hard conversations. And there were times in Afghanistan where um, I, I spoke Pashto also, which helped because it made... Um, it created a, a direct relationship with tribal leaders and village elders. It wasn't through an interpreter. But there were times when the uh, military guys, either the brigade combat team that I was co-located with or sometimes special operations units, would ask me to come talk to tribal elders um, to help resolve disputes. Um, and there was there was something in the dynamic, I think, as a, with a woman that made it just changed it and so i could um i think it's helpful often in negotiations it's helpful when you say hard things that um people are more quick to forgive or people have a harder time staying angry at me or you know whatever it might be so there are certainly times in my career where i felt like i was being you know patted on the head um and not mm -hmm. really listened to as a as a woman and so there's times where i feel like it's i've had to really earn some street cred with whatever audience I was working with. But um, but still, more often, I would say it's been an advantage. I love that answer. Uh, but I want to pick up a sidebar. Uh, one of the questions I like to ask people is, how much were you in the right place, right time? How much did you work really hard in this? Uh, posture is not an easy language to learn, if I recall correctly, from a conversation I had with somebody. How many of that languages do you know? And you're pretty good at picking them up. I know you learned Greek, Hebrew, Pashto, and English. So that's four. And I think Spanish also, you know, Spanish. Is that right? I would say I, I know two languages at a time because whenever I learn okay. a new one, I forget an old one. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I have at different times, I've spoken a variety of languages. Yeah. Uh, Romance, uh, Spanish, French, Italian. Um, I've, I've worked in Spanish, Pashto, Albanian, Hebrew, 
and English. And then I used French some when I was in Washington working on Algeria and Tunisia. Um, but I don't, you know, I'm so rusty in most of those languages now that um, I, I oh, would no, no, we're impressed. Refresher, stop so. it. Stop it. You know, stop the minimization. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've, I've worked in 41 <laughs> languages, but I don't know them all real well. Okay. Uh, no, I mean, so I'm just pointing out that uh, this wasn't handed to you. This is hard work. You have to put in the effort to learn. God gave you a gift at, at language acquisition. There's no question about that. But you still have to work at it, which is the way it is for most people, right? The uh, And I know that's not really yeah. a question. But, um, for every job, would, right. Yeah. Would you say that, um, I guess I want to ask this question, to what extent do you think God's given you a location in life? Like it just dropped into your lap. And to what extent is your position of leadership in the State Department a matter of very hard disciplined labor? Obviously, there's been some hard disciplined labor, um, but the times where it has felt like hard disciplined labor have been a lot fewer uh, than the times when it actually has been such hard labor because it's so interesting. I really love my job, and I think that's one of the real joys of getting to do a job that you love um, mm. because even, I mean, there's been times in my career where I've worked really terrible hours or had really just a lot of stress, um, but it's so fascinating and it feels so important that it isn't as um as draining as some other things i've done that maybe were less taxing so um yeah i don't know i i, I guess i don't even know if I'll, i'm not sure if i'm answering your question oh, I, <laughs> your I, I like i just i keep liking your answers um you know it's the old saying he ain't heavy he's my brother some of the hardest things we ever do are are physically draining but actually um, thrilling to us and deeply rewarding. Yeah. You know, Jesus said at one point, my will is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I want to finish the work. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. was at a time when he was tired and hungry. And he goes, ah, you know, tired and hungry. That's fine. But I want to finish this because this counts. Mm -hmm. And I think I hear that right. in a lot of people who, who work hard and also love their work. It's not misery. So there are a couple of things we can do for a few minutes. I want to ask you my rapid fire questions at the end. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't covered before we go to rapid fire at the end? Um, that's such a dangerous open-ended question. <laughs> well, um, it is open-ended. That's exactly right. Is there anything you want to talk you know, about? Thing, well, just one thing I guess I would like to share because it continues to shock me in my job. And I think probably a lot of your listeners don't know about it. Um, I have been amazed in my career how much um, the State Department does around the world. Like, I think I had, I knew some things, obviously, and I'd grown up, my parents were in the Foreign Service. I knew that we did things to help American citizens overseas. I knew we, you know, engaged with leaders of other countries to try to influence them to vote in a way we would like in an international organization or try to, you know, open doors for American companies to create jobs back home or whatever. But I just, I feel like every assignment, I learn so much more that we do um, that helps advance, um, you know, um, shared medical research or with the United States and other countries or helps um, address, you know, overfishing issues that can create real economic crises. And just, um, I don't know, I think um, my husband was in, the, he was career military and he talks about this all the time, that people understand what the military does as a whole, obviously not in detail, but, you know, writ large. But he's like, people don't understand what you all do and the effect it has on the United States. So I do feel proud of my organization. And I feel like I'm, it's, um, yeah, it's really exciting to be a part of, of an organization that is seeking to advance U.S. interests in every way imaginable. Um, so that's just my little tidbit. <laughs> right. And I hear you saying, I'm glad to hear that. That, that's, uh, I'm sure that's encouraging to a lot of us. As somebody like you says, I'm glad to work for the U.S. government. And, and I hear you saying, of course, not in a way that simply advances U.S. interests, but advances U.S. interests in a way that does not exploit other nations, which has Absolutely. to be gratifying to you as a believer. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was actually one of my questions. Is there anything that uh, the, the tail end questions, uh, is there anything about your work that nobody would guess? Um, so you kind of answered that, but is there anything else, an aspect of your work that nobody would ever guess? So this, this is rapid fire question number one. You're, you're supposed to keep your answers to less than one minute. Oh, gosh. I don't even know if I can come up with an answer in, in one minute. Okay, um, I'll, come, I'll come back to it if you want me to. <laughs> okay. You can answer another question and think about the prior question. Uh, what do you do to play or relax? 
we I love to go on hikes with my husband and our dogs. Um, that's one of my favorite or travel or have people over for dinner. We have people over a lot. We really enjoy that. Um, but pretty much anything outside, we both love to be outside. So and Namibia is a stunning. It's really just an amazingly beautiful country. So um, we're, we're loving it here. If I come to Namibia, can I can I visit you and you'll show me beautiful rock formations? Please come visit. Yes, beautiful rock formations and amazing wild animals and birds. Yeah. And there's just so much to see here. So, mm. All right. Here's a different question. You love your work. I'm so glad to know that. But putting aside practical considerations, what job would you do for one year? So um, this is a little um, complicated to explain, but I'll try to be fast. I am really interested and I'm concerned about um, the extent of um, – trauma that kids face in the United States and around the world. And I would love to be a part of working with various players in a system to try to help address childhood trauma before, um, you know, kids are in abusive relationships or prison or whatever. And so um, it would, I don't have any relevant expertise for that, but I just think it's important. And so if I could just do that for a year to work with, you know, city officials and teachers and coaches and, um, pastors and, you know, others, that would be, um, incredible. Sounds like you would do state department work focused on children in the U S a little bit, <laughs> Maybe that's which is good. Maybe it shows, it is. you know, this is the theme. You like your work, which is excellent. Uh, you read a lot of briefings. You confess to me that although you were a genius seminary student, which requires a lot of reading of books, you don't read a lot of books, uh, cause you're reading other things. So, I'll put it this way. What book or magazine or source would you tell, urge our listeners to read so they can know more? I read the CIA fact book for fun. I just find it to be amazingly <laughs> interesting. What should we read? I don't read? know you should admit that out loud. <laughs> oh, it's just full of information. Anyway, go ahead. It's it public is. information, Absolutely. by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. It is public. Yeah, actually, we help uh, contribute to those embassies around the world. I'm help sure contribute. you do. But, uh, yeah. um, you know, so I would say this isn't a direct answer to your question, but it is relevant. I feel like I hear a lot of Christians in the United States um, really wrapped around the axle about whether somebody is conservative or liberal. And that indicates to them whether they want to listen to them. I feel like we should be able to listen to people who are conservative and liberal both. Um, what we should be listening to, though, are really good journalists. I've been um, watching the United States from afar. It's been quite concerning how many people are um, buying into things that are, you know, generated by Russian bots or that are, you know, terrible journalism that's more like propaganda than journalism. And I think we really need to be hearing from people, whether they're liberal or conservative, ideally both, um, but who are serious journalists and who are serious about presenting what's happening, um, even if they spin it in a way that we tend to disagree with. That's fine. Um, so I encourage people to, you know, read good newspapers, um, read. And even if they if you have some disagreements with uh, with the leanings of the editorial writers, um, that should be okay with us as Christians, um, but we really need to care about truth. And um, I get nervous when I see people, you know, reshare things on Facebook or retweet things and say, I don't know if this is true, but. but mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. it's very important. It's very important for us to read people we agree with because they know much more about the topic of interest. Um, and it's also important to read people we disagree with. So we make sure we're not simply in that echo chamber of patting each other in the back sure. intellectually. Right. Okay. I'm going to go back to the question. What do people get wrong about your work? Uh, what would they be surprised to learn? I mean, I think it is that thing I said before, sorry, I jumped the gun, but it is how um, broad our range of, um, mm -hmm. of U.S. interests are. And because of that, we have a lot of agencies that, you know, every embassy will have multiple agencies. We have, for example, in Namibia, we have CDC here. Um, CDC is obviously well known to Americans now because mm -hmm. of the pandemic, um, but we have them here because of their work on HIV AIDS. And I'd never worked with CDC overseas before. Um, but, you know, whatever whatever the U.S. interests are in the country where you're working, that drives who's at the table at the embassy. And so in some places we have, you know, FBI or DEA or, you know, whoever. Um, but um, the goal is we need to approach things holistically and not just pick and choose, you know, a pet issue for a country because these countries around the world are our partners um, in a whole range of things. So, yes. All right. This is a new question just for you. 
I'm guessing that the Bourne movies do not accurately depict the State Department. It's just a guess I have. <laughs> Is there any movie well, that ever got even close to depicting depicting what embassies and State Departments do? I don't think so. That's the answer you know, so I There's obviously... <laughs> Let's well, all kill Jason Bourne. Let's just kill him. He's one of our own, but we don't like him. Kill him. I'm guessing that's not no, how it works the at the State Department. <laughs> It's not. No, I don't kill anybody. Um, there is the movie about the, I'm blanking on what it's called right now, but about the um, um, Americans who worked at the embassy who were taken hostage, um, not the long hostage crisis, but the ones who were in hiding when the long hostage right. crisis in Iran happened. Argo. Um, Argo. Argo. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, you see little bits and pieces like they were, you know, doing things to try to help American citizens. They were shredding documents that we wanted right. to keep protected from foreign influence or foreign access. Um, they speak foreign languages, et cetera. Um, but there I haven't seen something that and I think you really could have a fascinating movie because you're dealing with everything from American citizens in distress to, you know, high level negotiations um, to nuclear agreements to legal assistance agreement, you know, all sorts of stuff. So I think it's out there, but I have no um, artistic capability, so it won't come from me. <laughs> OK, that's good. OK, last question. Uh, if you could tell me who to interview next, who would it be? And if they're awesome and I don't know them, would you connect me to that person? Who should I interview next? Have you ever interviewed Jim Skillen? No, I haven't. No, that's I a would, good call. I would say Jim. Um, one of the things I find all the time, not only in the United States, I find this in countries I work in around the world, is the temptation to think that doing the right thing for your country equals trying to push your beliefs onto policy. Um, and I think Jim has been really helpful in thinking critically about that, like what it, what the government's role is to do justice and and um, and to advance the public good, um, which means I'm not trying to Christianize things, right? I'm trying to instead do things that um, that the government's supposed to do for the common good um, or to restrain evil or whatever it might be. So anyway, he is really thoughtful on those issues, and um, I think he would be interesting. All right. Um well, maybe we'll email afterward because I don't have his email. Uh, but I've been reading his, sure. his materials off and on for a long time. Uh, and that point reminds us that often the best way to be a, an evangelist or a witness or whatever is not by saying, I'm going to be a witness, but by doing your job, doing it well, and then maybe a conversation about ultimate matters ensues. So, Absolutely. Uh, uh, Jessica, it's a pleasure to have a longer conversation than we did a couple of weeks ago. We talked for, you know, <laughs> yes. four minutes maybe. And I appreciate you giving your time to us and uh, pray God's blessing on your work for the State Department. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks so much. This was a treat. I appreciate it. Working with Dan Doriani is a production of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. We seek to promote faithfulness in the workplace, in education, in discipleship, and in the stories of believers who've applied their faith at work. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. You can visit our website at faithandworkstl.org. There you can subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about faith and work cohorts, leave us a message and more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Faith and Work STL and find the video version of the show on our YouTube channel. All these links are available in the podcast show notes and on our website. Thanks for listening.